So to set the table this morning, I have a contention that will help make sense of the passage, and it starts with a question. What kind of atheist are you? Are you an atheist in the mold of Dawkins and Hitchens? Are you actively seeking to expose the emptiness of religion? If you're here this morning, odds are you're more of a passive atheist. You've come because maybe your spouse or your kids or your parents believe in these fairy tales and it's easier for you to go along than rock the boat and deal with social carnage. And there are probably some lazy atheists in the crowd, teenagers and adults alike, who quit looking for answers because they grew tired or embarrassed of asking the questions. Now, I don't doubt that uh, for a moment that there are pragmatic atheists regularly here in the theater when we gather on Sundays. Pragmatic atheists profess Christian doctrine but don't actually depend on God for anything. It's bootstrap theology. If things are going to get done, it's by the sweat of our brow. My guess, though, is that the majority of us are probably just partial atheists. We have belief and doubt intermingled, but don't think that's any less dangerous. Whatever your form of disbelief takes, the thrust of the sermon this morning is that Jesus is attacking it. He'll use anything at his disposal to convince you of who he is. Little Christians, young theologians, here's your job, should you choose to accept it this morning. Listen for this. What changes when you understand Jesus? What difference does it make to trust Jesus? So everything in the back half of John chapter 5 is a footnote to the oddly worded phrase of Jesus that Colin drew our attention to last Sunday... In verse 17, Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And that's where the game changed. Before that, the Pharisees were perturbed and frustrated. The religious leaders, though, when Jesus said that, they went from persecuting him to actively seeking to take his life. So this passage we read today, this is the good news For us, from our Savior, from a battle for our belief, hear the words of Christ. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus says to them in their unbelief, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, they bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. But if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let us pray. Our Father, here is the word that you've given that we might believe. And here's your people gathered as a flock. And so, good shepherd, would you lead us again into these green fields and feed us well and protect us certainly. Lord Jesus, call us out of our unbelief in the strength of your perfect authority. Holy Spirit, indwell us and empower us to respond And live as the dead to hear and leave our tombs to walk in faith. In the name of our triune God we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In 1964, after nearly 50 years... 
since the end of, or the beginning of World War I in North Africa, in 1964, the German government decided it was time to settle up the back pay and the pensions for the East African soldiers that fought the English and the Dutch with the German army. And all of these Askari soldiers that fought were issued formal certificates when they registered with the German army in 1918. And few, however, had been able to keep these little paper pieces of proof for the 46 years from 18 to 64. So the banker that was sent down from Germany with the funds in an office in North Africa had an idea. There were 350 men without proof that they were owed an enormous sum of money from the German government. And he looked into the corner and he had the men line up in single file and he handed the broom that he had seen in the corner to the first man. And that man had to reenact the German manual of arms with the broom substituted for the roll of his rifle. And not a single man of the 350 failed to execute that manual of arms perfectly. The mirror image was replicated again and again without fail because of the precision and the care that was given to mastering their craft. North African soldiers were honored years after their service because they perfectly understood German orders. They followed every command with unhesitating obedience and they reproduced the proof of their unique membership in their actions. And this is the arc of Jesus' argument for his accusers. And the claims that he's made to the Jewish leadership, this is what he says to them, watch me, watch me. You don't believe me? Look at me and watch. In the Jewish mind of Jesus' day, God was the only one exempt from the Sabbath because babies were still born on Saturday. Rain still fell and the earth still moved or the sun moved in that mind. And so as innocuous as his reply in verse 17 sounds to our ears, it shook that whole society to the core of its existence. And there was no doubt in their mind when he said, my father is working until now and I am working. Jesus is declaring his deity. His accusers heard his statement and they charged him with blasphemy. And in these 10 little words, Jesus had staked the highest claim for his identity, his authority, his responsibility, and his mission. And he doesn't just make this outlandish claim and move on. This passage in John is the longest speech of Jesus up to this point. And this is also in the whole book, the longest uninterrupted argument that Jesus makes to his accusers. This is of tantamount importance to understanding Jesus and his relationship to God for his relationship to man. And so Jesus has seen their deliberate disbelief and he attacks it with extreme prejudice. These religious leaders laid the claim that Jesus was outrageously independent. He had selfishly set himself on par with the Father 
but far from the accusation that Jesus, the rogue rabbi, was setting himself into something independent and autonomous from God, Jesus corrects them. No, no, no. This is a radical dependency on the Father. We have no concept to understand that. We don't have a category or a file to hold that sort of equality with the submission that Jesus shows. The only air any of us have ever breathed is the rough individualism of Western culture. And there's not a person in this room that can fathom the need and reliance that God the Son has for God the Father. Our view of equality obliterates any notion of submission and honor. But Jesus' view, Jesus' understanding of equality meant that he had to come under the Father. Phil Mickelson is a professional golfer. He went and played at Arizona State. Go Devils. He's actually right-handed at everything except golf. He plays golf left-handed because his dad taught him at a young age. And young Phil, little Phil, would stand in front of dad and mimic his move. But he wouldn't change it as if he was looking at a mirror. He played as a right-handed guy hitting a left-handed club. Because of his regular proximity and his dad's attention to instructions, the son's swing was indistinguishable from dad. And that's the argument that Jesus makes to the Pharisees. Far from being self-taught at anything, the Savior initiates nothing of his own but imitates everything he observes from the Father. My Father is working until now, and I am working And the central way that Jesus unpacks this over-the-top claim as as, as equality with God is he gives life just like the Father gives life. The gospel writer John will not let us get away from life. Aaron brought that up uh, as he preached through the opening chapter. And it's worth thinking back to how it begins When he's introducing Christ as the Logos, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And John wraps up the book in the second to last chapter, chapter 20, verse 31, John says of of his whole gospel. This is his thesis statement. I wrote these things. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's a one-trick pony, and Jesus came to give life if we would sit and listen to what he says. That's the story of the whole Bible. His light collides with our darkness, and where that happens, life thrives. That's the whole story of scripture from Adam and Eve in Eden as he breathes his life-giving spirit into them. In Abraham and Sarah in a barren womb and he breathes life into wombs through Moses leading a nation into and out of a wasteland and coming into a land with milk and honey in the dry bones of Ezekiel. And in the echoing chamber that was Christ's tombs, 
Wherever God is among his people in all of scripture, life follows suit. The incarnation of God, Jesus the Messiah in the flesh, is the life-giving pursuit of God's children by their father. Jesus was life itself walking through the graveyard of human existence. And the empty threats of death tried everything to intimidate him into the fear that you and I share. But life is not the only responsibility the Son was given to show us. The Father has also rested judgment on his shoulders. And so this self-righteous crowd of smug, justified, arrogant leaders have summoned and arraigned and accused not only the giver of life, but the judge of all the earth. And it would be hard for Jesus to be less concerned about their accusations. This rabbi ought to have sought to appeal to them and impress them. And he could not be more bored with how they view him. More unconcerned with their threats. I like to imagine Christ stifling a yawn in front of snarling hordes of enemies. And here's why I think he doesn't really give a rip. He knew who he was exactly, and he knew where he was. This was enemy-occupied territory. This was his land, his father's world, and he had come to reclaim it. Jesus also knew his Bible better than most since he had a hand in it. And he knew his opponents thought they did too. And in his explanation of the sphere of his judgment, Jesus dips into the collective conscience of the Jewish mindset and grabs an image that they would all know. And in verse 27, he stares them down and flips the courtroom on its rear and he sticks them on the stand and he says, I was given authority to execute judgment because I am the son of man. And with that phrase, the record scratches to a halt. All the eyes turn on him, and it got real. They were already seeking to kill him, but this puts him over the top. Jesus doesn't throw away words and phrases. Remember, this is his longest reasoned argument against his opponents. Everything in this argument is where it is. It sits there for the purpose of belief. And so when Jesus drops son of man, he wants them shocked. He wants them bothered. He wants them offended. We know that because the very next phrase he says is do not marvel. Do not marvel. So it would help you understand the shock value of what he's conveying if you understood the book of Daniel prophet in the Old Testament. Daniel is sort of like the Old Testament's version of Revelation. There are grotesque images and confusing symbols, but this one's not confusing in the slightest. And so when Jesus says, son of man, here's what they heard from Daniel 7, 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. They charged him with thinking himself equal with God. And Christ said, yes, I am. And you're fighting him by opposing me. And you should be afraid. Be very afraid. Everything that comes to bear on life today or life eternal rests in the work of Jesus the King. And so all this talk about life and judgment intersects with our existence both in the present and way out where time expires. Life and judgment matters now, not just when you close your eyes on earth and open them in glory. Much of our Christianity and much of religion in general claims salvation is a ticket out of the mess and the mire of life. Salvation for far too many matters for a disembodied future only. And Jesus won't have any of that. And so that warning in verse 29 that made all of the Calvinists gathered here nauseous, made you question Jesus' theological studies. Let me set your worried hearts at ease about good deeds and evil deeds. This promise of life or judgment is not about salvation as much as it's about the effects of salvation. And here's the crux of the matter of faith. It all hinges here for Jesus. This is the point he's making in verse 29. Knowing Jesus is never mere information, but it's always transformation. You And the complete reality you live in fully shift when you encounter and experience Jesus. Because trust in Jesus is a relational trust. It must bleed into every corner of your existence. And the Christianity that Jesus propagated in himself was never a way to check out. But it was always a way to engage. Salvation is going to brokenness, not fleeing from it, not building a fortress to hide from sin and evil, but running to it with life and judgment. The expectation of God is that in coming to Jesus for life, when we come to Jesus in trust and repentance and hope, we actually ought to look alive. And that we lean into this broken place to see beauty and truth shine and to work and see death and decay come to an end. To actively, messily, and painfully participate in both life and judgment the way Jesus did. And the way Jesus still does. The eternal life of following Christ begins here and how we treat our neighbor. It begins here in how you repent to your wife and kids. Eternal life begins here in how you fight temptation. Eternal life begins here in how you lean into your occupation. 
If you've trusted Christ for salvation, then live. Live in every area of life. The perfect future of heaven invades the disorder of earth every moment and in every instance that the life Jesus has given us spills out of us in active faith. That's light shining in the darkness. Your Christian service in jobs and at home, in ministry and in play, the life of Christ coming out of you is a declaration that his unending kingdom is overthrowing the death of this world. And so if your profession of faith is not shaping your heart or changing your relationships and your life, then there's judgment. There's the righteous indignation of a king who's given you all that you need for faith and godliness. One of those well-deserved complaints of the new atheism of the West concerning the church is our misplaced outrage. They claim we're bothered about the right things. And often they're absolutely right about us. I asked at the outset this morning about your particular blend of atheism. I'd like to bring us back around that way as I think Jesus does. Think about it this way. Lean into the passage and your walk with the Savior this way. All the places in your reality that don't intersect with Jesus, those are where your disbelief lives. If Jesus matters for you in church, but it doesn't matter for you in temptation, and sin, then your atheism lives in your shame. If in your life, if Jesus exerts authority around family and holidays and mealtime prayers, but has nothing to say about free time and how you spend your money, then your atheism thrives in selfishness and small pleasures. If your Jesus cares about your politics, but never calls you to pursue the least and the last and the lost, then your atheism has taken root and is bearing the deadly and rotten fruit of a calloused heart. Real atheism is as frustrated with the church as Jesus ought to be. The judgment promised here is for those whose belief does not echo into actual life. And it made the Pharisees squirm when Jesus said it to them makes theologians squirm when Jesus' brother James says it later in the New Testament. Faith without works is dead. And I'll show you my faith by my works. And it ought to make us squirm too when we sit and take stock of not just our faith, but our faithfulness. I have an addiction to the History Channel. I love learning how to make whiskey, which I haven't done yet. I love learning about ships, marvelous wonders that man makes. And a few years ago, they started a series called Marked about tattoos. And they did one about the tattoos of Russia and centered in a portion of it, especially on prison ink. 
during the high years of Soviet communism, the gulag inmates would regularly tattoo, among various other things, stars and epaulets and skulls and cathedrals, and all of those mean something. These guys, though, would regularly mark their bodies with the faces of Lenin and Stalin, over their chest especially, and over their kidneys and vital organs. And they didn't do it because they wanted to keep those guys close to their heart. It was those guys and their policies that had led them to the gulag. They, they had no love for communist leadership. They put it there to keep the guards from hitting them where it hurts, or cutting them on the mark that they had to respect. The actor, the same actor that plays Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, Viggo Mortensen, plays a Russian uh, hitman, crime lord, in a movie called Eastern Promises. It's not me recommending that. Um, be, be wise and judicious in what you watch, but he does a good job of playing a very bad guy. And the director of that movie had him get the same legitimate tattoos that a Russian hitman would have if he had served time. And they interviewed Mortensen in this History Channel marked episode. And he said while they were filming in Russia, every run-of-the-mill Russian that he bought coffee from or picked up a sandwich from treated him with kid gloves when they saw his hand reach out to take something. They could see, they could interpret all that his marks were saying to them. Every star, each link of chain, every animal and symbol conveyed the criminal's story and status. And for the Russian mafia, an inmate's ink is show and tell because every mark is a menacing sign in a twisted tradition. And so with a single glance, the initiated can read and understand what's being said. Jesus is not a hitman, but in some sense, that's exactly what he's doing as he's showing himself to these Jewish leaders. In their unbelief, they were demanding proof of his claim. Who do you think you are? And so Jesus peels away the layers of evidence to his nature and his ministry. And they had placed him in the dock and accused him with no witnesses other than themselves. The only piece of evidence they could provide was their outrage and their offense. But the tables have been turned. And Jesus has crammed all of his prosecutors into the stand. And he's demanding that they give an account for their lack of faith. And as a Jewish teacher among Jewish people operating under Jewish law... The Savior was fully aware of the expectation that he provide multiple witnesses for his claims to prove himself. And so he does. He holds up John the Baptist. He points to his works. He brings the Father across the stage. He grabs all of Scripture and calls their best friend Moses. And he says to these spiritual leaders that accused him, these marks of trustworthiness are all over me. And all of my marks, all of my fingerprints are all over that evidence. How? How can you not believe me? And how can you persist in unbelief? 
How can you believe against me when everything that you trust accuses you? And so Jesus in his prosecution rests and the defense is silent. They have no rebuttal. And John immediately moves on in John chapter 6 to the greater works that Jesus says they would see and experience and have to witness to. John's abrupt transition leaves us still wondering about all the implications of the hypostatic union with Christ, of the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. John moves right along and leaves us wondering, and that's good. It's good for us to have to sit and listen and ponder. And so whether you came today as a full-blown doubter and skeptic of everything you've seen and heard thus far, we're welcome you're here. Or we welcome you here. We're glad that you came to join us. And we hope that you feel welcome, even if you're the kind of atheist that makes Richard Dawkins proud. Maybe you come week in and week out with your blend of disbelief and belief believe, Lord, help my unbelief as the man cries out to Christ. Wherever you are in that spectrum, or if you're delusional and think that you have everything figured out and there's nothing in your heart to trust, wherever you're at, here's God held out to you. And the Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, the Promised One, God in the flesh, the redeeming Christ, it could be that you, like the Jews here, remain unconvinced. Maybe the testimony of John the Baptist and miracles in Scripture feel like redundant and circular arguments. Here's what I would ask you to do in honesty. Here's what I think Jesus wants us to do. I think we should doubt our doubts as much as we doubt the faith. And if you're honest enough to question the validity of your personal interpretation of life as much as you question the faith of Christ, I think you'll see life grow and death diminish in your soul. From the opening of Scripture in Eden, truth has never been plain for all to see and interpret individually. Even in the perfection of the garden, long before the fall, God walked in fellowship with all of creation, explaining his truth, explaining grace and mercy to people who had no sin, explaining beauty and wonders to his children in obedience. Even prior to sin's dreadful entrance, humanity was not expected to understand or operate outside of God's interpretation. So I hope we can each grow to disbelieve our autonomy as much or more than we doubt Jesus' believing dependence for us. And I can't make sense of dinosaurs or quantum space theory or evolution, or all the suffering of mankind. But it's a lie from the pit of hell that we need an answer to every query to believe and live. Jesus is not afraid of science. The false dichotomy of faith and reason, of science and belief, is not 
it, it doesn't exist. My knowledge is not able to reason you into the faith. If I can convince you by my authority that you need Christ, you need a tiny Christ. He came working to give life. And that's something unbelief will never comprehend. Your doubts can't make sense of the joy of any redemption outside of yourself. Your doubts can't make sense of perfect peace, the stillness of mercy poured out in one's soul amid the terrible storms of life. Your doubts can't make sense of the judgment of God incarnate and his self-sacrificing love that came to us in our rebellion. My disbelieving reason will never grasp grace and will never understand Christ. In faith, even in weak and wounded faith, doubt all your doubts and strive with everything in you to lean on the cross and the empty tomb for all of life. I have yet to meet an honest human who doesn't believe in the sinfulness of man. Even atheists who deny God believe in sinfulness. And that's our greatest contact with everyone that crosses our path. Because if we're all sinners, we all need a Savior. And if we're all dead, we're each longing for life. Jesus' accusers looked to Moses, and Moses denied them. Anything that you are trusting in or looking to give you life outside of Christ, no matter how good, no matter how holy, no matter how pure it looks, if it's outside of Christ, it will betray you and it will accuse you. The incarnation, the coming of Christ is our judgment for our sin and death. And at the very same time, it's the gift of life. And our coming to Christ in faith and repentance should feel like life. It should look like new birth. And it should feel like growth in His grace in everywhere that we live. Amen. Lord Jesus, bless this reading and this preaching and all the living of your word by giving us faith in a Savior that leads us to life. Give your church an abiding, a living trust in all your work on our behalf. Not that we would believe better or act better, but that you would be honored in our rising from death that we might strive to make you beautiful and believable in our trusting and repenting and our living. We're hopeless cases without your Holy Spirit coming to rest in us and convince us. And so be kind again and pour grace into our hearts and our lives. And for all of us doubters and disbelievers, Would you grant us faith that seeks understanding? Do these things, our dear Father, our risen King, our powerful 
and dwelling spirit for your glory and our great gain.